are embarking on part eight in our resilience series, where we have been unpacking and unfolding a letter written by the Apostle Peter that deals with what it means to be resilient, that shows us how we can embody the quality and the skill set of being able to bounce back and endure difficult times. And over the course of this series, we have talked about what it means to be resilient in hope, and we've talked about what it means to be resilient in character and in conduct and righteousness. We've talked about what it means to be resilient in relationships. Pastor Lance walked us through resilience in marriage. And last week, Pastor Cliff walked us through what it means to be resilient in love. It was masterful preaching. If you happen to miss it last week, go to bridgeway.church and check that out. But today we're going to look at what it means to be resilient in suffering. I know that's warm and fuzzy and what you wanted to hear right after coming off of Thanksgiving, but it's important. And I want to give a little disclaimer just that we're going to talk about suffering in some real ways today. That may be triggering and just unpack some things in your own heart, and that's okay. Uh, but particularly if you have young people with you in the building, you just may want to create some space on the drive home for some processing and just some explaining if that's what you need to do. Suffering, th that word is often used interchangeably with the word pain. I like the way um, Eleanor Stump, she's a philosopher, I love the way she frames it. She, she frames it as a violation of what we care most deeply about as a violation of kind of this internal inherent metric we have for the life that we're living versus the life that we know we should have. And so we suffer when we fail to get the outcome that we care most deeply about. So I just want to start today by acknowledging that like if you're suffering from anything and in any way, that means that you're alive and it means that you care. And that's a good thing. The thing about becoming a believer is that once you become a believer, your whole life changes. The way you engage and think about everything, including your suffering, has to change. It has to become different. So suffering for you as a believer is different than other people who don't believe and the way they suffer and the way they think about and engage with suffering. For the believer, there are two great truths about suffering. Truth number one is the reality that if you are suffering from anything, God is going to do one of two things and only one of these two things. Either God is going to lift you out of it or God is going to walk with you through it. Those are the only two things that God is going to do. This is the only way this ends for the believer who is suffering. Either God is going to bring me out or he's going to bring me through. And that's real good news because one of the things that makes suffering really hard is because we don't know how it's all going to turn out, right? I'm not sure how the cancer diagnosis is going to I don't know what's going to happen with this relationship. I don't know how I'm going to get through this situation or that situation. You can put all that to the side now. You know how this ends. Either God is bringing you out or bringing you through. That's the first great truth about suffering for the, for the believer. The second great truth about suffering for them that follow Jesus is this. Suffering for the believer has value. It has worth. It has merit to it. Either it did going in, or God added value to it on the way out. How can I be sure of that, Pastor? How do I know that it has value? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. How do I know that my suffering has value? Well, you know it because God says it. 
If you were to open up Isaiah's scroll or turn, uh, turn to it in your Bible, you'll find that Isaiah says the words that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. That's really important because what does it mean? It means God is not you. That's why in this series, we put resilient holiness before we talked about resilient suffering. We talked about how the holiness of God speaks to the fact that he is not like us. He is completely other, right? And that's really important, this idea that God is not like you. He, he's not like you at all. The, the Bible says that as far as the heavens are from the earth is how different God is from us. Now, you may become like God, but he's not like you, and that's critical to our understanding of suffering right? Because it really speaks to the way that God looks at and engages with our lives and that the way God looks at and engages our lives is very different than the way we look at and engage with our lives. First and foremost, God has vastly more information. God looks at our lives from the scope of eternity. And when you have all of forever to do what you want to do, this little hundred years, that we have on this earth, if we're lucky, is like a drop in the bucket. And God is always looking out at our lives from the scope of eternity, not just this hundred years that we have here on earth. And one day when we all get to heaven, we are going to laugh about some of the things that used to stress us out and worry us and we were so concerned about. And we're going to say, you remember when we used, to, ooh, we used to worry about so many things that just don't matter in the scope of eternity. God is not like you because he sees life from eternity. God is not like you in that he can lead you anywhere because anywhere that he goes, he's God. There is nowhere that God goes where he's going to encounter something that is bigger than him, that is stronger than him, that scares him, that knocks him off his game, that even surprises him. God will lead you anywhere because anywhere we go, he's God. He's God in the garden. He's God in the desert. He's God on the mountain. He's God in the valley. This is why David could write those words. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And he could say it from his chest like he meant it because he knew I'm walking through the valley with the one who made the valley. Of whom shall I be afraid? God is not like you because he doesn't get dictated to by fear. We let fear move us and, and control us and inform us. God does not. God is not like you. The third thing I need you to understand is that God's agenda is bigger than your life. I know that living your life is really hard not to see your life as like the center of the known universe, but actually God's agenda is bigger than your life, but it uses your life. Your life is a tool that God uses to speak his message and not just to the world and not just to unbelievers, but to the supernatural world. The message that God speaks through your life reverberates through heaven and hell. Your life is one of God's biggest flexes. It's one of the ways that God brags. It's one of the ways that God speaks to everything that exists and says, I'm God and I'm good and I'm big and I'm all that in a bag of chips. God's agenda is bigger than your life, but it uses your life. And from this place of God being who he is, what he understands is that suffering can be useful. 
And sometimes this is really hard for us to like embrace and wrap our minds around because, well, frankly, I don't know that I like the idea that God wants to use suffering in my life to speak his, his message. Figure out another way, Lord. But here's the thing. When we lead people to Christ, or right before we're about to baptize them, we always ask them one question. We say, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? We say, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now, we know that Jesus is a friend. Why don't we ask, have you accepted Jesus as your friend and Savior? We know Jesus is a brother. We don't say, have you accepted Jesus as your brother and Savior? No, we say, have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Why? Because we understand that the key to becoming a believer is acknowledging that Jesus is the boss, that he is in charge, that he gets to make the decisions. And these other character attributes about him, his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his, his sweetness, all of these other things help us to trust him in being the boss and help us to say, you know what? I don't love the idea of God using my suffering to send his message, but you know what? I trust him and I affirm him as the boss. I don't get to decide how he uses my life. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Here's what I need you to get. When you're walking with Jesus, your suffering becomes imbued with purpose. Now, I don't have time today to unpack the full concept of, of purpose in suffering, but I do want to talk about a few common ways that we suffer and the purpose that we find in those kinds of suffering. Some of us suffer from illness, from sickness, from ailment, from disability, and even, even from death. The Bible says that this was not God's original intent or design or his heart for us, but that these things that we experience are the direct impact, the direct ramifications of sin in the world. Now, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. Because I am not saying if you've got sickness or ailment that it's because you did something evil and wrong and God is punishing you, right? That's not true. Jesus himself debunked that myth in the New Testament when he was healing the man who was born blind at the pool of Siloam. And you'll remember the disciples, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, none of them. The man is born blind that God's will might be accomplished in the earth, right? So, so sickness and illness and, and disability and, and physical ailment, these are not punishments for sin, but they are the consequences of sin being in the world. And the beautiful thing is that God uses that sort of suffering. God uses it to remind you and I that his way is better, that his design is better, that what he has for us is better. Some of us suffer from terrible, just awful circumstances, just, just bad things happening in our lives, car wrecks, loss of jobs. I, I, I go out of the country a lot and, and the, the type of uh, poverty that I've seen in the world, the type of starvation that I've seen in the world, just terrible circumstances. One thing you should know about me is that I, I love being a pastor. I love my job. It's what I'm called to. But like secretly, I want to be a lawyer. I just don't want to pay for that type of school. So 
often I go on like these like YouTube black holes where I watch court cases, Senate court cases and congressional hearings and all kind of interesting stuff. And I was on YouTube, I think it was on Thursday night, and I was, you know, in one of those black holes where I'm just watching these court cases. And I stumbled on this case about this family, the Cipriano family. And the Cipriano family was your, you know, typical American family, and they decided that they wanted to adopt a child. And so they adopted this young man who had been born into a family that was abusive and neglectful and, and all of the things. And they gave him a home, and they gave him love and a family. But some combination of mental health and trauma and probably spiritual and demonic attack moved this young man at about the age of 17 to take a baseball bat and kill his dad his adopted father. He then took the baseball bat and attacked his adopted mother and his adopted brother. The father died, the mother and the brother never fully recovered. They still deal with brain injuries, brain damage, physical damage. And as I watched this case and I just watched this boy on the stand, I just, I thought to myself, like, what purpose is in this? What purpose can there be in this? But God reminds me that, that there's purpose even in those types of grotesque and just awful, heart-wrenching, suffering circumstances. He reminded me that, that God uses those sorts of circumstances to re-rack our values and to refocus our dependence on him. The Cipriano family has had to hold on to God like never before. And those type of awful, awful circumstances give us the same opportunity that was given to Job in the Bible, and it is the opportunity to grab hold of God and hold on for dear life during the struggle. There's purpose in suffering. Some of us are suffering, like our pastor, just from spiritual attack, from spiritual warfare. The devil and his crew harass us because we are attached to God. But with God, there's purpose even in that kind of suffering. That is all a part of the war, the war that God is winning. And what spiritual attack lets you know is how useful you are and how valuable you are and how much of a threat you are to the kingdom of darkness. How do we know this? Because if somebody wants to commit a burglary, they don't go rob the man sleeping under the bridge. Why? Because he doesn't hold anything. And so for those of you that are experiencing spiritual attack, just know it means that you're holding something, that there's an anointing on your life, that there's something that God is doing in your life. There is purpose in suffering. Your spiritual suffering gives God the opportunity to shut the enemy down. There's purpose in suffering. There are places in the world where people suffer just for being a Christian, for being a believer. That's a little foreign to those of us in the New Testament. I mean, in, the, in, in America, but it, it was the common type of suffering spoken about in the New Testament. The New Testament talks a lot about persecution, about when the, the world and the devil harass you because you believe in God. One of my students here at Bridgeway, one of my young adults, she um, is really interested in mission work. She's an incredible, incredible human. And so she was trying to go to Turkey to do some mission work, and Turkey is kind of anti that. And so she was, she was sneaking in, kind of, and she got there, and they kind of caught her. They kind of figured out, you're here to do missionary work. And they deported her, this 18-year-old girl. They didn't even tell her, like, where they were sending her. They were just like, listen, you can't stay here, and here's your ticket. Get on that plane. And 
I thought how scary that must have been for her. But she and I were having coffee a couple days ago, and she told me, she said, no, but like when the female security guard looked through my bag, she found my Bible. And something changed in her when she, when she found my Bible because she didn't tell the other security guards that I could speak Turkish, which would have complicated the situation. And she didn't tell the other security guards that I even had a Bible or, or where I was coming from. And so I thought to myself, I wonder what God was doing in that, in that woman's heart, that, that lady security guard's heart, through this girl who didn't even get to go and do her mission. There's purpose in suffering, y'all. Being a persecuted people is who Peter was writing to in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter, and he was writing it to a people who had been persecuted. If you just open the first page of 1 Peter, you'll find this is how he addresses his audience. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, who now for a little while, as necessary, have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how he, he says, who, this is who I'm talking to. He was talking to a group of people whose whole lives had been disrupted. In his audience, there are the Israelites who had been scattered because of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, right? And then also in his audience are Gentiles, non-Jewish people who had adopted the Christian faith. So the interesting thing is that this letter written by 1 Peter is thought to have been written at the beginning of the Neronian persecution, right? So Rome is running things in Israel. They have occupied and they're oppressing Israel. And out of Rome comes this new emperor, Nero. Now, if I were to start going up and down this aisle, and if I were to ask you, who is the most evil politician alive? I'd probably have some 65,000 different answers. But whoever you think about, when you think about the most evil politician in the world, they don't have anything on Nero. Nero came to the throne at 16 years old. That's when he became the emperor, right? Brilliant. Let's give the 16-year-old control of the country. And his mother, like any mother, tried to kind of guide her son in his new job. She kind of tried to run his life. He didn't like that, and he murdered her. His wife would aggravate him. She'd ask him questions. She'd get on his nerves. And so he decided to kill her, too. In 64 AD, there was a great fire that swept through all of Rome. It started off in the retail section and then moved kind of toward the temples and places of worship were, and then eventually moved over to where the houses and the homes were. And it burned for what is estimated was seven days. It burned for about a week through Rome, wreaking havoc. And Roman historians share consensus that Nero started that fire that Nero decided to have that fire started because he wanted to get rid of the old architecture so he could build up his new architecture and put his name and his flag on all of the new buildings. Not only that, but legend has it that as the fire burned through all of Rome, Nero went to his favorite palace, sat on the roof, and wrote music about the destruction that he saw. This is Nero. This is who was in control of the lives of some of the first people that read 1 Peter, and he hated Christians. After the fire, he started a rumor that it was the Christians that had started the fire. And that gave him the power to initiate the first systemic, state-sponsored Christian witch hunt. 
Christians got arrested, they got thrown in cages, they got fed to wild animals like lions and tigers. I, I know that maybe at some point in your life you have been persecuted for your beliefs, but like nobody has ever accused you of treason against the government because you say you love Jesus. The very death of Christians became sport. They would be hunted by dogs, they would be nailed to crosses, they would be set on fire. It, it is said that when the sun would go low, they would find a Christian and set that person on fire to keep the streets lit at night. Historians estimate that some 3,000 to 3,500 Christians were killed during the Neronian persecution, including likely the Apostle Paul and also the Apostle Peter, the author of this very letter. And Peter writes to the people who are getting ready to experience this, and he's, he's trying to explain to them what is happening to them so that they aren't unnecessarily rattled, so that they are assured that while all hell is breaking loose, that Jesus is going to come back and reveal himself to the world. And when that happens, all the evil in the world is going to know that the believers were right to believe and to trust in Jesus. I think about these people who are experiencing this, this persecution, and I think about how their hearts would just like leap if they walked into this church right now and saw all these thousands of Christians just worshiping freely, how, how their hearts would just soar at the sight of you getting to worship because they paid your price. They paid the price for you to get to do that. And so Peter writes to them and he writes to them to help them navigate through suffering, through pain. He helps them to deal with what to do in the meantime, because like you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor, the history lesson was great. But what do I do in the meantime? What do I do while I'm actually suffering? Because persecution hurts. Suffering hurts. It hurts to hurt. So what do we do? And Peter says in the new Judah Sanders with help from Lance version, he says, keep your head in the game. Keep your head in the game and remember that God knows what he's doing and that it's all going according to plan and that every bit of suffering is valuable. God doesn't waste anything with you. Nothing you experience is wasted in God's economy. Either we're being made better or the enemy is being shut down. And no matter what is happening, we know that one day it'll all be more than worth it. And today we know that God is walking with us through it. In fact, this is your fill in the blank. God is with us in our suffering. God is with us in our suffering. I need you to adopt that, not just as something we say because it's cute, but because it is the fundamental truth that whatever you're suffering in, God is with you in your suffering. And Peter, he writes this letter and he reminds the, the believers that suffering is normal, and valuable. Turn with me in 1 Peter to chapter 4. I want to read verses 12 through 13. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. In the ESV Bible, under the seat in front of you, it is page 1016. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love that he starts the letter off by saying beloved, because it is a term of endearment. 
It lets us know that he was writing to a group of people that he deeply cared about and that he deeply loved. This is just important to us because sometimes when we look at the Bible and we see the writings of the apostles, their words are harsh, their language is strong, and it's hard to kind of grab some of the, the hard language. But, but this, beloved, it reminds us that, that he was writing to a people that he had their best interest in mind, that he deeply cared about them. And what does he tell them? He tells them to expect a fiery trial. He tells them that it is imminent, that it is to be expected. He was writing to a group of people who, for some of them, they had not experienced this persecution yet, or if they had, it hadn't gotten as bad as it was going to get. But he's writing to a people living under a broken, sinful leadership system, and it was particularly hard for them because they were Christians, and that made them the minority, right? Uh, for a lot of his audience, they were Jewish Christians, right? And, and so that meant that they kind of got rejected from the Jewish community. Like, you're not quite Jewish enough because you're Christian, but they also weren't Gentiles, and they also weren't Romans, and so they're kind of like this extreme minority. I, I don't know anything about being a minority myself, but... Uh, they were a minority which made them an irritant to the majority. And what you'll find is that different tends to agitate normal, always. And so Peter says to them, he says, don't be surprised about this persecution. Don't be surprised about the suffering that's coming. And, and this statement, to not be surprised by it, this would have been really striking to his Gentile readers, his non-Jewish readers, because they were not used to persecution for their beliefs. The Jewish people somewhat were. They had been persecuted kind of throughout their whole history. The brilliance of Rome's occupation is that Rome would come into a territory and say, you know what, don't fight us back. We're going to take over your land. But like, listen, you can still wear what you want to wear and eat what you want to eat and worship who you want to worship. We'll build a nice little statue, put them in the church with everybody else's gods. It's fine. Like, don't fight us. The Jewish people said, no, 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 we don't do that. We love one God and that's it. So there had always been tension between Rome and, and the Jewish community. But for the Gentiles, they had acquiesced to that system and built a life in that system. And so all of a sudden, they go from being in the majority to now being in the minority. And so the persecution that came upon them felt sudden. I don't know about you, but I can, man, I can deal with anything if I know it's coming. If I know the pain is coming, if I know the suffering is coming, I can deal with anything. If you had told me two years ago what 2020 was going to look like, I'd have bought all the toilet paper at Costco and started a business selling it out of my garage to you for 500%. You understand? I would have prepared and been all right. But sudden suffering, whoo, that's a different ball game. And for these Gentiles, the, the suffering for them was sudden. And it's easy when we start to experience sudden suffering to think something is wrong with me, that I've done something wrong, that God is punishing me, that I've, I've somehow, I've called this on myself. Some of us, we, we really feel tricked when we experience suffering, especially after we get saved, because we say that preacher stood up there and said that once I gave my life to Jesus, I was going to be blessed and happy and all these things but my life is really sucking right now. Sudden suffering is hard, but it's normal, Peter says. It is to be expected, Peter says. And when I say that, I don't want you to hear me trivializing your suffering. I know what you're going through is hard. I know what you're walking through is challenging. 
I don't want you to hear me saying that suffering is normal and think that I'm saying that we shouldn't do everything in our power to come alongside people who are suffering. We have a whole ministry here at Bridgeway called the Compassion Ministry, where we take a whole lot of the money that y'all give every week and try to bless and help and support people who need it. So I'm not saying any of those things when I say suffering is normal. What I'm saying is don't be surprised by it. It comes with the territory of this life. At some point, we have to reconcile with the reality that we can be fully loved and still suffer. That we can be smack dab in the middle of God's will and still suffer. That we can be fully right with God and still suffer. Peter says, suffering is normal, expect it. He says, it is coming to test you. In BYA, we sing this song, uh, it's called Refiner. And, and the lyrics of the song are, I want to be tried by fire, purified. And every time we sing it, I get to trembling just a little bit. I'm like, do we really? <laughs> when my faith is real low, I change the lyrics under my breath. And I want to be tried real gently, Lord, real gently. Be easy on me. <laughs> because testing is hard. And in the Bible, there are three kinds of common testing that we see. The first type of testing that we see in the Bible is a testing that comes to show you what the quality of ourselves is, right? It, this is the kind of testing where, that we see in like 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, which says, test yourself to see if you are of the faith, right? And that's the kind of testing that we think most commonly about when we think I'm being tested by God, is I'm being tested to see if, if I got it, if I'm, if I'm worthy, right? But that's not the only type of testing we see in the Bible, the second type of testing that we see often in the Bible is a testing that is meant to purify you further, that is meant to make you better, that is meant to stretch you, to grow faith in you. This is the type of testing we see in, in the New Testament when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he asked Philip a question. He says, how are we going to feed all these people? That was a test, the Bible says. Because Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he was trying to stretch Philip and, and build faith in him and disciple him. So that's the second type of testing that we see in the New Testament. The third type of testing that we see in the New Testament is the type of testing that God gives us when he is trying to show us what he already knows. Just how marvelous he made you just how strong he made you, just how much he gave you to endure. Sometimes God tests us to allow us to see, look what I made. Look how good of a job I did with you. I gave you what you need to make it. It's like if we, if we make an iron bar, we put it up on the wall and tell people, hey, come, come do some pull-ups on this. Try to bend it. Try to stretch it. See how strong that metal bar is? This is the type of testing that we see in the book of Job where Jesus is, God is just bragging about Job. You see my servant over there? Look at him. And then God lets all hell break through in Job's life so that Job could learn, I gave you what you need already. I gave you what you need to make it. And I think that this is the type of testing mostly that God gives to believers. God is trying to show you what he has put in you. So Peter says, don't be surprised by testing. He says it's normal. He says to expect it. And then he says what I think is the hardest part to swallow. He says, rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. And that's a tall order. And I found that the only way that I am able to actually rejoice in my suffering as Christ suffered is to go back to why Christ suffered. Why did Christ suffer? It is a very simple answer. It is one word, you. 
God suffered for you. He took on your sins and died for you. And the why of Christ's suffering helps remind me that there is purpose in my suffering. If my suffering is like Christ's suffering, then there must be purpose in my suffering the same way there was the ultimate purpose in Christ's suffering, which was the reconciliation and the saving of his people. This is what I need you to get. Write this down. Suffering proves a point. What point does it prove, Judah? It proves that you're a part of the family of God. It proves that you actually have life here on earth. It proves that you have the opportunity to cling to God and to build relationship with, you, with him. It proves that you are legit. Not only does your suffering prove that you're a child of God, but the way you respond to suffering proves that you're a child of God. The way you bounce back and endure Your suffering proves that you are a child of God. You'll find that your Bible say that long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. It says that patience while suffering, that resilience through suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. Listen, there's proof in your suffering. And while, yes, you get to suffer like Christ suffered, you also get power like Christ has power. You get healing the way Christ healed. You get miracles like the kind that Christ performed. You get authority over demons and devils just like Christ had. You get all the whole package. When God looks at you, God doesn't even see you. He sees Jesus. And that's real good news because Judah is a mess. Like Judah wouldn't make it into heaven. But when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees his son. And so Peter says, if you're suffering, rejoice in it. Look forward to rejoicing when Christ's glory is revealed. He reminds them that while all of Rome is on fire, he says, one day I'm coming back to get my kids and to fix all this mess. He reminds them that persecution means that they're legit. I want to read verses 14 through 16. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify the name of God. I want to point out just a couple of things. He says you are blessed in your suffering. Sometimes it's hard to see the blessing in suffering. But what he says is that the evidence of blessing in your suffering is that you have the Holy Spirit. That's a blessing. Sometimes we only think about kind of material things or, or like supernatural, like healing and deliverance as blessings. But the fact that you get to talk to the Spirit of God, that he lives within you, that is a blessing. He says, don't be ashamed of your suffering. He says, wear it like a badge of honor. Put it on like a coat and walk through the streets with your chest out and your head up because it means that you're a child of God. When you are suffering for Jesus, suffering doing the right thing, suffering trying to be the best mother that you can, suffering trying to be the best husband and father that you can, it says when you're suffering for the right things, wear that like a badge of honor. I don't know who needs to hear this, but God wants somebody to know he's proud of you that he has seen you walking through what you've been walking through in this really difficult season and seen you enduring and saying, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to try to be somebody's mama again. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to try to be a good husband again. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to try to be a good believer again. He sees you and he's proud of you. And then Peter tells them, he says, and while you're suffering, he says, you glorify God in it. 
So what is the appropriate response to suffering? It is to praise the Lord. And so every time you come to church, you have this opportunity to praise through your suffering, to say, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to clap my hands anyway. I don't feel like singing. I don't even like the song, but I'm going to sing of his praise anyway. I'm going to lift up my hands anyway. I'm going to give God the best that I have, even if I don't feel like it, because Peter tells us this is the appropriate response. I'm suffering, so I praise. I'm suffering, so I praise. The Bible talks about Paul and Silas being in a jail, about to be executed. And the Bible says they got to clapping their hands and singing their songs. And soon enough, the walls started dancing and singing with them until the walls came crumbling down. Praise is the appropriate response to suffering. And then Peter tells him, he says, don't suffer as the bad guy. He says, don't suffer as the murderer or the meddler or the thief. This is really important for us because sometimes Christians get persecution mixed up with just like being stupid. Sometimes we as Christians, we just like make the wrong choice. And when we get called out on it, we scream, we being persecuted. Oh, they're persecuting us. No, you just didn't do the right thing and got called out on it. Sit down. (laughs) But Peter closes this part of his letter. He closes by reminding them that judgment time is coming. That's verses 17 through 18. He says judgment is coming and that it's going to start with the house of God that we are going to be held more accountable than the people outside of this church because God has called us to himself, because God has equipped us for this journey, and because God's expectation of us is that we follow him. So he reminds them, hey, take this, this life serious. And even when you're suffering, that does not give you license to not live godly. He reminds me, he says, judgment is coming. And then I love, this is how he ends He ends this part of the letter. He reminds the believers of God to trust him. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, therefore, you know, I love a therefore. Therefore ties what came before it to what's coming after it. He says, therefore, because of all of this, He says, when you are suffering according to God's will, as God sometimes allows his kids to suffer, sometimes to prove one point or another, sometimes it's just because the world is sinful and broken. But when God allows you to suffer, he says, trust him. Why? Because he's a good God, because he's trustworthy, because he's in control, because nothing catches him off guard. Peter says, therefore, trust God. This is why we have to encourage each other, because sometimes you may come to the house of God and the weight of your circumstances is so heavy that you don't have it in you to trust God. And that's when your neighbor's responsibility is to tap you on the shoulder and say, baby, trust God. Every time you come to this church, you have an assignment to encourage somebody else to trust God. You may just do it with a smile or just a hug or just a wave, but it is your responsibility. You are tied to the person sitting next to you, and your responsibility is to remind them to trust God. Last week, somebody gave me a bag of coffee beans. Somebody here at Bridgeway, they didn't know I was discouraged, and it blessed my whole night. Blessed my whole night. You have a responsibility to remind people to entrust their souls to a good God, to leave your life in the hands of the Father. Trust him. He's got this. I've told y'all before, I love hymns. I'm not going to sing. I don't want y'all to even hold your breath. But I love hymns. And one of my favorite hymns was written by Horatio Spafford. Uh, Horatio was married to a woman named Anna, and they had five kids together, four girls and one boy. 
and they had a wonderful business and they were kind of living life. And then in 1871, Horatio's son got pneumonia and he died. Three years later, 1873, there was the Great Chicago Fire and it decimated Horatio's businesses. It bankrupted him. And so he called his wife and he said, listen, we're going we're gonna to have to go start over somewhere else. And he put his wife and their four remaining daughters on the ship. He said, sail across the sea. We're going to find a new home. I'm going to come in a couple of days, but I got I to gotta tie up the last little ends of, of our business. And well, while his wife and his daughters were on this ship, it was called the Ville de Havre, it crashed into a Scottish iron ship. The Bi uh, not the Bible. The, the history says that Anna gathered her daughters and brought them to the top deck and she began to pray over them. And the story says that she prayed two things, that she prayed that either God would save them from drowning or God would give them the endurance to, to go through whatever was about to happen to them. About 12 minutes later, that boat sank, taking 213 of the 300 plus passengers on the ship, including Anna's four daughters. Horatio, hearing that his wife had just lost now five children, he jumps on the first ship that he can to go and be with his wife. And the story says that as he was on the boat trying to get to her, that he looked across the waters that had swallowed up everything that he loved. And he penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when psalms just like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. And he said that as he was looking at his life falling apart, as he was looking in the face of what I just imagine is the greatest suffering there. I just can't imagine suffering greater than losing your children. I just, I don't know, maybe there's something, but I, I can't wrap my mind around it. And I just think that if Horatio was able to do that, that we too can look our suffering in the face and say, whatever my lot, whatever it is, we're gonna be okay. So I just wanna give you a few minutes. Rayon is gonna sing that song and I wanna give you a few minutes just to like bring your suffering in both hands before the Lord and to kind of soak in the idea that like you can make it through your suffering, to just talk to God about it, to come to him and, and pray the prayer. Lord, I know that this is only gonna end one or two of two ways. Either you're gonna bring me out or you're gonna bring me through. But to bring like whatever is troubling you to him and have that conversation with him that you might walk out of here just like a little stronger just like ready to go back and face that thing that you're going to face just as soon as you get home. So he's going to sing a little bit of that, and then I'll come back and we'll pray together, yeah?
Father God, in the name of Jesus, there are some of us who are suffering. There are some of us who are in so much pain, we do not have words to articulate it to you, Lord. There are some of us facing circumstances that are so heavy, we can't even walk straight up. Father, there are some of us whose hearts are broken, but your word says you are close to the brokenhearted. Your word says you draw near to those of us who mourn. So Father, see about us that are suffering. Meet us in the place of brokenness. Hold us in that place, God. Encourage us and strengthen us in that place. Father, we know that there are only two outcomes for us. Either you're going to bring us out or you're going to bring us through. For most of us, our prayer would be, bring us out, Lord. Take us out of it. Set us free from it. Heal us completely, Lord. Mend it totally, Lord. But Father, just as Christ said, not our will, but your will be done. So Lord, give us what it takes to go through it if that's your will. Give us the motivation. Give us the strength. Lord, bring us the practical tools to walk through this journey that you've given us that we might be able to walk it in a way that gives you glory, in a way that gives you honor, in a way that brings joy to you. Lord, you can speak through my life. Lord, you can speak through my suffering. I give myself to you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And because of that, Lord, I surrender. Lord, encourage my friends today. Give them what they need. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Jesus' mighty and righteous name, we say amen.